All right, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul has a definite writing style when you read what he writes, at least when he's writing alone. And uh, uh, he, I want us to somehow convey a sense of, of the way that he approaches the church and ministry this morning and the brief time that we have together. And we'll primarily be in the Word, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 16. He writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, you read about, you read these words, and Paul is just giving what seems like good advice to a church. Hey, when you get together on a Sunday, that's when you receive your offering for the needs of the saints, okay? And so that's happening here. But if you read the rest of the letter to Corinth, he has just spent a whole lot of time getting after them pretty hard. They have a lot of problems. They are probably, and I'm not going to put this in the class of problems, they're in the, but they would be more of a charismatic church. I mean, this word charisma, we get it from his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, they, they definitely have a high view of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, but they also have a very high view of themselves. And that comes through. There's a ton of pride. There's factions among them. There are super apostles or men who claim to be super apostles. There are people who question the authority of Paul. There are factions about all kinds of things. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, at one point in this letter, tells them, you are yet carnal. You are fleshly, selfish. And uh, there's factions. There's even disagreements about whether women should wear head coverings and the role of women in worship. There are uh, people are, are kind of in chaos over not only spiritual gifts, and there's a lot of speaking in tongues and no interpretation going on, but there's also inappropriate receiving of the Lord's Supper. People are coming and literally getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And then they're not, they're not leaving enough for the others who come behind them. Can you imagine somebody standing up here at the table and drinking all of the cups? And so Paul says, hey, if you're, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, do that at home because that's not what the Lord's table is about. So you have these issues, and, and maybe the, one of the worst of them is their arrogance over gross immorality in their midst, which is that a man has his father's wife. And Paul takes them harshly to task over this immorality and says, hey, this guy isn't repenting. You need to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit might be saved. Can you imagine a missionary getting up amongst us this morning and saying, hey, so-and-so here is the worst, and we're going to hand him over to Satan because he refuses to repent? That's what Paul does here. And so then he gets to the end of the chapter, and he asks them 
to raise some money. (laughs) If I had a 15-point sermon for you this morning rebuking you, and then I took an offering, I don't know how much we would raise. (laughs) Does that make sense? Kind of getting a sense of the, the context here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. This is what he wants for them. But what I love about Paul's farewell, and and what I mean by his farewell, is he's not leaving Corinth. He's not even there when he writes the letter. But it's the portion of his letter that is a farewell. It's his goodbye for now to a struggling church. How does he deal with this church that is definitely not doing great? A lot of you and, and I would probably have left Corinth by now to find another church. How does Paul deal with Corinth? Well, he, he basically says to them, if you find that you are inclined to be selfish, give. There are needs around you, and I want you to think outside of yourself. Paul had earlier said to them, you are yet carnal. You're fleshly. You're selfish. I believe that one of the worst things we can do when we're struggling in other ways spiritually is to also stop giving to God. You might say, I'm not qualified to give to God. Give anyway. Obey him where you can. Right? You might say, well, we can obey him in every way. I agree with that. His grace is sufficient. But don't stop obeying him in one area because you're struggling in another. Paul is calling them higher. Another interesting assumption that Paul makes is that they're willing to listen to him and they're willing to go on in relationship with him. And whether or not they are, he is going to assume it and he is going to act like it. This is a church. And he's committed to them and to their success. He will correct them and he'll call them higher and he expects to see them do better. And that's the amazing thing. This is the difference between, I think, what the church ought to look like and what the world so often looks like. And even in the church, we do this, don't we? We write each other off. We block each other on social media. We defriend one another. We'll write someone off over very little things in a, in a moment of emotion and a pet, impetuosity. But God doesn't think that way. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that God is willing to be very radical in his discipline of somebody. But in all, his desire is to bring you back when you stray. To correct me when I'm wrong so that I can be successful as a Christian. I love that about Paul's heart. So giving. You know, I've never sought to preach this truth of giving, tithing, these kinds of things in such a way as to make the church I'm pastoring rich. I don't think about it very much at all. I was raised to tithe. Uh, for me, it's second nature, and I'm grateful for that because it's not a big wrestling match every month whether I'm going to write the check. It's just whether I notice it on my calendar to do so immediately when it comes up or if it takes a week or two. Uh, so it's not an issue for me. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about or trying to figure out for sure whether you tithe, but I really genuinely, fervently believe in it. Uh, not health wealth, Uh, Plant your seed today and you're guaranteed to become rich. No. Faithful giving. Sacrificial giving. Supporting missionaries through my giving. Giving to the needs of the saints as we have opportunity. In not hiding ourselves from our own flesh, as the Bible puts it. When when someone tells me that they don't practice this, 
and they're practicing their freedom in Christ not to give, I believe that they'll end up putting their money into bags with holes in it. So I think that's a scriptural truth. I don't get to make that decision. I just think that that's the way it works because I believe that that's what Scripture teaches. And so I'll present it to you just flat out, no manipulation. We're not going to have a long giving service at the end. It's a brief blip at the end of 1 Corinthians. But I think it's important to mention from time to time because sometimes I think believers look at their, their bank balances and they go, why am I struggling so much? It's not that why am I poor because most of us are poor, uh, well, for Americans anyway. Uh, it's that... It's why is it that everything I seem to do seems to be eaten up? Well, if we're not giving our first fruits, I think that can be an explanation. I really do. And so I offer to that to you for your own sake, less than for the sake of God and of his kingdom. But we'll move on. Paul also reminds the Corinthians, hey, by the way, you've got me. You've got me involved in your lives. Here at the end of the chapter, he says in verse 5, now I will come to you. When I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. I'm coming your way, he says. In verse 6, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. You know, one thing that we need to get better at is when we confront one another in love about a sin issue is to say, hey, now I'm committed. Not now I'm walking away. We can bottle things up and then vent them out and yell at each other and then end the relationship. Or we can do what Paul did and yell at them and say, now I'm going to come spend like three or four months with you. <laughs> We're going to spend even more time together now. What does that tell us about Paul's character and his heart for the Corinthians? I'm invested in you. You have been badly behaving yourselves, and I'm looking forward to coming and spending a whole bunch of time with you. <laughs> yes, is there a little bit of a threat in there? Yeah, I've read Philemon. Probably there is. I've read Galatians. Paul, Paul does threaten occasionally his presence. How shall I come to you? He'll ask. But he's coming. But then you see something else about his heart. He says in verse 8, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. What is he saying? There are people in Ephesus who still need to hear the gospel. There are disciples who still need to be established. There are elders who still need to be appointed. The church needs to be built up, and it's my priority in Ephesus just as, as, as much as it is in Corinth. I'm going to come and be with you, but first I have some work to do that's very important. What's the common denominator here? I believe it's souls, it's souls, never dying souls. And, and if we were to follow and to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, I think we would begin to see every person sitting in the pews this morning. And when you go to Walmart or Safeway or Dollar General after service today to grab whatever you need to grab, every person that you see, when you see them, is there that sense, even if it's not conscious, in your spirit that this person in front of you will live forever in heaven or in hell? And there is a soul to save. 
This is not a work that I can do, but it's a work that Jesus gave his life to accomplish on your behalf and on mine. And Paul is infused, inflamed with his passion for every soul that comes along his path. Not one more special inherently than another, but every single one of them bought with a price, that of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that he offers to them, to you, salvation full and free. Perhaps more than anything else, John Knox, have you heard of that guy? Of, of Scotland, Presbyterian guy. Perhaps more than anything else, John Knox is known for his prayer, give me Scotland or I die. Knox's prayer was not an arrogant demand, writes someone, but the passionate plea of a man willing to die for the sake of the pure preaching of the gospel and the salvation of his countrymen. The Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, is reputed to have said of John Knox, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. (laughs) And well, she should have. Why? Because he was inflamed with a desire to see souls come to Christ. And And then Whitfield, remember that fella? George Whitfield, great circuit riding preacher of the 18th century. Banned, someone writes, from preaching in the early 1700s in the Church of England for his preaching and undiluted gospel. Whitfield was an eminently useful tool in God's hands. He was said to have preached the majority of the people in the 13 colonies in the U.S. as well as to the coal miners in England whose degraded lives prior to the gospel were notorious for their debauchery. Whitfield had a constant prayer on his lips. Do you know what it was? Give me souls or I die. (laughs) This is not just drama before heaven. This is something that was really, really on his heart. John Hyde, who died in 1912, also known as Praying Hyde, in India, his mission field. Someone says of him that the Spirit made him an object lesson to us, that we might have a better idea of what was Christ's prayer life. John would spend hours and hours with his Lord, forgetting about sleep and food in the gap for believers and those to be saved. Oh, God, he'd pray, give me souls or I die. (laughs) I found these testimonies on three different websites for three different men. What is it? I think there's something of the sacrificial spirit of Jesus Christ in the hearts of these men. Paul said something like it for the sake of his brethren, the people of Israel. For I myself could wish that I were cursed for the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel. Give me souls or I die. This is Paul's heart for Ephesus. It's Paul's heart for Corinth. He looks at a church that's really gummed up and he says, I'm coming to you. And it's not because he wants to build himself up, but because he wants to see them built up, them evangelized, them established, their families saved, the ministry going forward in a healthy way. That's God's desire for Fruitland too, by the way. He wants to see you built up in the most holy faith. This is serious, glorious business that we're on this morning. It's the most important business. It just happens to be that of your soul's is the most important business there is. Where will you spend eternity? How will you live your life spent for God? Will you be sacrificed and surrendered to him, to his purpose and to his will for your life? Will you be useful to him in ministry? Is there anything more important than that? 
And then he writes in verse 10, If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. There are many works that we have to do. We have the work of building a business, potentially. We have the work of building a home. We might have the work of building a network of friends and associates or the work of building a skill or hobby that we love. And these works can become consuming for us. My wife and I were married on June, uh, Saturday, June 8th, 2002. My wife must have saved a little calendar tear-off sheet, you know, the little kinds that have scriptures on them for every day. And I found it as I was going through our records the other day. And the scripture for the day we were married, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. There is a work of God that Timothy will come to Corinth to perform. It is heavy-duty business. Something changes fundamentally when Timothy arrives because his work is the work of the gospel. This is the work that the Lord is building. There is a seriousness about his aim and focus that the Corinthians need to catch. Are you sober-minded about the reality and the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you enthused for the work to which he has called you, upon which no one else may a few others may smile, and certainly few others support, and yet God is calling you to it. Do the work. Do it well. Be grounded. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Corinth, you're not an island. You're a church among churches, and you're a people among others whom God has also raised up and to whom you are accountable. And now Paul is listing them. Corinth, 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 get over yourselves. <laughs> there's a lot other churches. There's a lot of other precious souls. There are leaders. They love you. They care about you. Do the same for them. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. 16, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. We are in a time when we have fewer and fewer who have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And I want to challenge you, all of you, all of us this morning, to be a strong caliber of people once again. This is not just for 50 years ago or 80 or 120 years ago. You be the men and women of God. You be the young people who are on fire for God. You be those willing to take up your cross and follow after Jesus Christ. And me too. We need to be established. We need to have done with lesser things. We need to get rid of the sin out of our lives and everything that entangles us and so easily bewitches us and get our focus once again on Jesus Christ. Start reading his word once again. Start being faithful to the church. Start giving. Start preaching and proclaiming and sharing the gospel with everyone that God gives us opportunity. Praising and praying and triumphantly marching home to heaven, taking our sheaves with us. Amen? Amen. That's the call. And it hasn't changed. Hallelujah. Paul writes, I'm glad about the coming 
of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. You've got people who love you, are you going to love them back? The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. When we do this on a Sunday morning, right before announcements, and you greet one another, I, you know, it's not na- mainly going to be with kisses. We're Americans, and I, we would probably have to have a meeting of the leadership if there was too much kissing going on during that time. And I understand that, but certainly a handshake, maybe a hug, sometimes a kiss. But the, you understand the spirit that Paul is wanting the Corinthians to imbibe. Brother, I love you. Sister, you're on my heart. I care about you. I had a dear person come up to me the other day and say fervently, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And then she had some some words of encouragement for me. And I've remembered those words a dozen times since. And I've thought on them. That's the love of God through his people in the church. We need to be that way. And I think sometimes, and I know that there's lots of wounding that has gone on in the house of God. It it happens. I've been wounded and so have you. Yes, and we need to heal from that. We really do. And it's a shame what happens sometimes. We get almost cult-like in churches at times. There's abuse that takes place at the hands of leadership. Uh, And that's all true, and I don't discount that. But at the same time, sometimes I think we need to take those wounds to the foot of the cross and determine by God's grace, I'm going to love his church anyway. I'm going to be the person that maybe others have not been to me. When I see somebody hurting, I'm going to go pray with them, even if they don't thank me. I'm going to love the people that walk through the doors. I'm going to greet them with a holy kiss. The church in revival will be a church that loves deeply and with abandoned. And finally, Paul is saying, if you find yourself thinking that the gospel is all nice, the truth hurts. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. What does this mean? It means, again, we're called to a serious business. She knows it. (laughs) That there is a, a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. Amen? And no one can come to the Father but through him. And those who don't love him will be damned. They'll be cursed. And so this makes us to be sober-minded when we remember this. That this is something that requires our, our allegiance. It would be inappropriate with any other man. It would be blasphemous with anyone else. But not with Jesus Christ, who alone is the Son of God, who alone died for me, rose again the third day, and is coming again to receive us to himself. He writes in verse 23, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. There's his farewell to a struggling church. I want God's grace for you. I want you to know I love you. Samuel Rutherford said, Strive to make prayer and reading and holy conference your delight. And when delight cometh, you shall little by little find the sweetness of Christ till at length your soul be overhead and ears in Christ's sweetness. If there was a heart that Paul desired for Corinth to have, it was one born of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, swimming in his grace. 
endowed with the love that Paul had for them in Christ, that Christ had given to him, that when an unbeliever walked into their fellowship, he would fall on his knees saying, surely God is with you. Would you stand? Father, we are reminded that if this is God's heart for Corinth, oh, we're grateful to be included. And may we not, in our hearts, think ourselves too good for such rebukes or for such love. That, Lord, the worthiness that we have is found in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And, Lord, that the the, the call to holiness, the call to repentance is real The call to die to ourselves is there and it hasn't changed. The call, Father, to give up all and follow Jesus Christ. But when once we begin to enter into that path of discipleship, we receive the abounding grace of Jesus Christ, washing away our sins, flowing over us, the love of God filling us, knowing that we're part of a church that not only is all over the world, but that stretches back 2,000 years to that day when Jesus said, the debt is paid, it is finished. Hallelujah. We praise you, dear God, and we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit among us today. Raise up a people. Raise up a church that is called out. Revive your people in the midst of her years. And we thank you and we give you glory in the house of God. Praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.